now as we get into this season of the year is, how many of you refuse to turn your heat on yet? <laughs> you would rather get up and see your breath in the kitchen in the morning than admit the fact that it's getting down to the 30s. How many of you are, you've already got your heat on, in fact, you're going back and forth between heat and air conditioner? Those of us that do that are normal. We're not living in denial. It's been a weird year, but winter is still going to come. However, this is my favorite season of the year. I, I love the fall, love the autumn. Yesterday was about as pretty a day as God could create, and uh, it was wonderful uh, to be outdoors for a little while. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you would turn to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to continue on with a series that we began last week. The title of the message today is, Have You Seen This Jesus? Have you seen this Jesus? Before we dive in, let's ask God for his help and direction this morning. Lord, we understand that your spirit leads us and guides us into all truth. And as we get into your word today, we recognize as we, we get into the symbolism of, of what different things represent, that at times we can get confused. And would you just bring clarity to us today? Father, there are those that may also be confused in their faith today as well. And I ask that you would just bring clarity to them. Lord, we recognize that you in these days are giving people an opportunity to once again recognize that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you are the Savior of the world, that you are the only answer to mankind. And I pray that you would anoint me in such a way that as I deal with the truth of your word, it would be clear and you'd bring people to decisions and rejoicing. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to welcome those of you that may be watching on our live stream service today as well. We understand that we have quite a congregation that we haven't been able to see here, but we're glad that you can join us. I don't know about you, but having grown up in the church, being a preacher's kid, I had a chance to visit a lot of churches. And I remember in, in, in a lot of these churches, there were portraits of Jesus in, in different ways. And one of my favorite portraits of Jesus had to do with the fact that he was sitting down and had a child on his lap and there were kids all around him. And, and for me, it just brought to, to my heart a peace that God loved kids and that if, if the children loved to be around Jesus, then that had to be good because how many of you know kids have a sixth sense about people and their nature? And, and, and if children like to be around somebody, generally that speaks volumes about them. There are other portraits of Jesus that some of you may remember. You know, there were those of Jesus carrying a lamb on his shoulder. Some of you remember those. Some of you, yeah, you remember that, that portrait of him. I remember seeing another one of Jesus standing in the river after he'd been baptized and his hands were up and a dove sitting upon his head. And I remember seeing that one in, in some of the churches. And then there was the, the really serious one of Jesus kneeling next to a rock when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it was right before he was going to be arrested in his crucifixion. But in all of these portraits that we have, that we have seen, it begins to paint a picture or captures a moment that helps us identify with the human aspects of Jesus when he was incarnate. But as we get into the Scripture today, we are going to see a vastly different portrait of Jesus than we have ever seen before. 
Because this portrait of Jesus is one that he no longer is now on earth and he no longer is in his humanity. He has finished the task that he needed to conclude here and now he is the real Jesus and he's in the throne room of heaven and in the realms of glory we're going to begin to see him today in a brand new way. And today I would like to talk about something that happened on a Sunday morning. As you're looking at your scripture it says that John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. It was a Sunday morning that Jesus rose from the dead. And it, what happens in Revelation chapter 1 is probably the other most famous Sunday morning in Christian history. John, who was the last surviving of the 12 apostles, by now he is in his 90s. He is on the prison island, sentenced there by the Romans because he would not renounce his faith in Jesus Christ. And we are told that on a Sunday morning, he had escaped to a place where he could begin to worship. And something dramatic happens to John. And the book of Revelation is a result of this divine encounter that he has with him. And for those of you that have been asking, why aren't we handing out bulletins with all of the, uh, the outlines and stuff? We are not at a place yet where we can actually hand things to you. So I trust that you came with a notebook or you have some paper that you can jot down some note with, notes with. But the first point that I would like you to jot down today is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. What a wonderful thing to be in a place of worship on Sunday. One of the things that bothered me the most about those several weeks where we weren't even allowed to gather together is that Sundays were so vastly different for us. You know, we might be able to gather together and we'd watch something that we had produced for TV and we felt like, well, we've heard the word and we got to watch worship. There's nothing like being here. There's something to be said about being together on the Lord's Day. And for those of you that may be watching online today, we want to invite you to come. We miss you. And I don't want people to get too accustomed to not being in the house of the Lord on the Lord's Day. Because that is important. And John said that on this Lord's Day, he was in the Spirit. In other words, he entered into the presence of the Lord and he is seeking God. And I would imagine from his vantage point on the island of Patmos, as he's looking across 50 or 60 miles of water to, to the mainland where the churches that he was going to be writing to were associated, that he probably was feeling the tug in his heart of the people that he loves. And so he is praying for them and he's praying for believers that he knew by name. And he probably is praying for the churches that he had been a pastor to. But at some point, his attention probably turned to himself as he recognized, this is not where I wanted to be on this Lord's Day. I am a captive on an island, probably having to be a part of a workforce that I did not sign up for. And here I am. And so his prayer likely turned to, Lord, here I am in, in these chains. Here I am in this bondage. And Father, here's what I'm going through personally. And so, Lord, would you, would you encourage me and strengthen me? And and I don't know about you, but I am really, really good at praying for myself. In fact, sometimes I'm better at praying for myself and what I'm going through than necessarily I'm about praying for you and what you're going through. And I, I know as a pastor, you're going, well, my view of you just took a nosedive. I'm just being honest with you here. How many of you are really good at praying for yourself when you're in trouble? Four of you. The rest of you are liars. <laughs> And you're in the house of the Lord on the Lord's Day. Let me just remind you of that. And in this season of being in the presence of the Lord, 
Something begins to happen to him, and the Spirit begins to reveal to him things in this setting that he had never seen before. In fact, we can look at other places in the New Testament where it talks about people being in the Spirit in, in a brand new dimension. We find in Acts chapter 10, Peter went to a place of prayer at noontime, and, and the Scripture says he fell into a trance. In other words, what had ever happened, his ability to communicate with those around him was removed so that he could be in the Spirit in a brand new dimension. Paul talks about this as well when in 2 Corinthians 12 it says that he was caught up into a third heaven. He goes, whether I was in the body or whether I was outside of the body, I don't know. I just know that when I was in the spirit, something happened to me and I was able to see things in a new dimension that I had never seen on this dimension before. And the fascinating thing about Paul's experience was that Paul heard things. And it said he was not allowed to tell anybody else. He wasn't allowed to utter a word about the things that he heard. He must have been a very, very good person at keeping secrets. Because he got into the inner recesses of heaven and heard things that he could not tell us. But here, in Revelation 1, with John and this experience, while he is in the Spirit, his view of what he saw was completely different than that of Paul. In fact, he is commanded. I don't want you to hide what you're saying. I am commanding you that you write and record what you see. And while he was in the spirit, the scripture says, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. The second point I want to bring out to you today is that John reveals to us in Scripture where Jesus is. And this is really important to us. As I was reading this passage, I love the detail of this because you can recognize that John is trying to be as detailed as he can in his writing. And, and so it, he is placed into a setting in the Spirit. And the setting he is at is not as if he was out in an audience and he's watching something on the stage because the way that he describes this is he says, I am placed, I'm in the middle of a panorama and the first voice I hear is behind me so I have to turn around to see what's going on. So he literally is in the middle of whatever is, is being shown to him. And in verses 12 and 13, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest these were the circumstances of his, his vision he is caught up in this in the spirit and he's about to have a unique view and vision of jesus but before he does the first thing that he noticed when he turns around is he is standing in a room and there's seven lampstands there and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of God or the Son of Man. I would have you underline that statement in your Bibles if you would. We know now as you get to the end of this chapter that these seven lampstands represented the churches that he was about to write to. And we know that in the Old Testament, when you got into the temple worship and begin to see things there, that these would have been representative of the lights that would have been there. But John looks and he sees that there's not just one lampstand, there's seven of them here. And it was as if he is thinking geographically of the seven churches that he's going to write. Like each one of them represents to him a place. Each one of them represents a particular church or a group of people. And the idea is this. 
that each church has a separate witness, though we have a similar and same God. It's interesting for us today to recognize that while we are in the middle of church today, there are churches all over the city, all over the nation, all over the world that are proclaiming the same Jesus that we are proclaiming right here. But we at Grace Assembly have our own unique personality. There are other churches have their own unique personality. But the same God is the God of all, and He is the one that enlightens and brings the light to each of us. And so we are grateful to be a part of what God is doing and we're glad that we can be a lampstand in the environment that we are in. The next thing that we notice as we look at these lampstands is the environment in which they are set. Because you don't light a lampstand if you're in the middle of daylight. You light a lampstand when you're in the middle of night. This is such a description of the terrifying world in which we live in today. We live in a dark world. The environment that surrounds us as it relates to the moral capacity of our world and the spiritual darkness in which we see, the political darkness all around us. We live in a dark world, and in the middle of that, God has uniquely planted his church and uniquely planted you as individual believers with the light of hope that is most well seen the darker it gets outside. And it's in this environment that John looks and he sees the lampstands and they are lit and he sees them being lit because they are in the middle of darkness. And I love the imagery of this. That in spite of the fact, and, the, and we are going to be looking at these churches and the individual message that God has to each of them, in spite of the fact that the church has its faults, and we all have our faults, it did not disqualify them from being lights in the dark world in which they lived. He had a word of encouragement for each of them. And then there's each of us. It's so easy for us as believers to say, I do not account for anything. I'm not able to influence. I, my testimony is one that seems to be silent, and the Lord wants you to know in the dark world in which you live, He needs you to radiate the light that He has within you to everywhere you go. But I am not perfect. He didn't ask for perfection. He asked you to be a light of his glory everywhere you go. And the fact that in this vision, the first thing that John sees is that Jesus is standing in the midst of these churches, standing in the midst of the believers. He's not in a far-off place looking at them, hoping they can make it. He's walking around in the middle of it, putting his hands and, and, and working each one so that they can be most effective in what they do. And that's important for us because we need to know that in the world in which we live, in the day which we live today, God's arms are not too short to touch you where you're at. His arms are not too short to touch our church and to bring an anointing of the power of the Holy Spirit upon us because he's walking in the midst of us today and he's taking care of everything. That's the first thing he sees is the presence of Jesus in the midst of the church and his people. And as he continues to look, he begins to see a vision that no painter could reduce to canvas. It's a word painting that John begins to give us here because he sees Jesus as the Son of Man standing in the midst of the church. And, and then we encounter this term, Son of Man. And we tend to think of as, as expressing Christ's humanity, but honestly, that could not be further from the truth in terms of how the word is used in the New Testament. 
The word son of man in the New Testament is used 80 times. And when it's used in the gospel, it is a term that the Lord most frequently uses to describe himself. Jesus is describing himself and uses the term the son of man. Nobody ever uses this term except Jesus in the New Testament. And so it's kind of a parable word. It's a phrase that will conceal the truth to those that don't know him, but will reveal the truth to those of us that do. In fact, I told you before as we get into Revelation, you are going to need to have had some understanding of the rest of the Bible because there are 100 references in Revelation to Old Testament Scripture, especially books like Daniel. And this reference of the Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and this is what it says there. There before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples and nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Oh, hallelujah. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is the one who John sees. He is the one who comes in absolute majesty and sovereignty. This is the Jesus who John sees standing in the midst of the churches. Not the crucified Jesus Christ, but the Lord of glory in all of his awesome power and majesty. And so we declare today that he is awesome. He's intimidating. And yet he's close and personal and responsive and real to us. And that leads into this vision to this third point as John reveals the sevenfold majesty of Jesus as he begins to describe him. I was told years ago that the clothes make the person. And I've discovered through the years that there's two types of people. There are those that get dressed for comfort. There are those that get dressed for fashion. I always laugh. I'm sorry, ladies, I laugh at ladies who are wearing these high heels and, and at the end of the day, they can't wait to throw their shoes away because they're just, they're so sore, but they have dressed for fashion. And then there are those of us that my mama would always say to me, you need to go change your clothes. I said, but these are comfortable. She goes, yes, but we're going to a wedding. You need to put on a suit. And, and so we recognize that there are events that you go to that it's appropriate to wear the right thing. Like you, you would uh, wear a tuxedo to something that is formal, but you would look out of place if you wore a tuxedo on the beach. But we understand that the clothes mean something. And in this vision, we understand that in the Old Testament, if a person was clothed in a robe that went from their neck all the way to the floor, that it represented the fact that it was a person of great power and the coloring and the gold that was represented indicated a status or a status in life and, and power. And this is a robe that is described as one that would be worn by the highest of high priests, a robe that's worn by kings, a robe that is worn by most important people. And the description of this robe is identifying to us that Jesus Christ is now the highest of the high priests. He is now the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. He is dressed because there's none that is above him. And so he is a priest that is represented to us as one who connects us with God. In fact, I love the Roman word for priest. It's, it's pontifex, which means bridge builder. Jesus is the bridge builder between God and man. 
He became our high priest. He hung on the cross between heaven and earth and dies for our sins. He did the priestly work of connecting God with humanity. And now we can be in his presence forever. And then John's description of what he sees gets really dramatic. In Revelation, the number seven stands for perfection and completion. And here is the perfect, awesome, transcendent Son of God in stunning beauty, complete majesty that suddenly John begins to describe to us in great detail. And in verse 14, he says this, The hair on his head was white like wool, white as snow. Now, this is meaningful to us that live in Syracuse. We understand what white like snow means. I was speaking in India a number of years ago, and I was talking about passage that our sins would be made white as snow, and I tried to describe to the people that we get a lot of snow here, and the pastor came up to me later and goes, these people have never seen snow in their life. They have no idea what you're talking about. I thought, I wonder what that's like. <laughs> but when we see a person with white hair, we think in a certain kind of dignity, agelessness, maturity, wisdom, experience. And John sees Jesus now, and it's really vital for you to know that he is not seeing the 33-year-old Jesus with blood matted in his hair from a crown of thorns. He is not seeing the Jesus whose body has been disfigured by the stripes and, and by all of the wounds that he had. He is seeing a Jesus who, because of the way he was, is now living and showing himself in great victory. I think it's important that in the middle of a world in which we seem a little bit out of kilter right now, we don't know up from down, we don't know how the elections are going to go, we don't know when the COVID ordeal is going to end. It's very easy for us to have our world tilted a bit. But here is God who stands and the very first thing he sees is the white hair of God and understands that our God has weathered everything for us. He is the ageless one, the eternal one who transcends all of time that we are now confined in. And he is ultimately wise and he knows how to walk us through times like this because of his great wisdom. And John says, then I saw his eyes and his eyes were like blazing fire. I love this picture because it shows us God's ability to penetrate into our souls when he looks at us. He sees us and he can judge our motives and he judges our thoughts. And I think about a time back that is recorded for us in the New Testament when, when Peter had told Jesus, you can count on me. I'm never going to deny you. And Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times before the night is over. And he's going, it won't happen to me. And then we know exactly what happened. The third time he denied him, the rooster crowed. And it says in, in, in Luke 22 that Jesus looked at Peter and the look from Jesus was enough to send him running out into the darkness, weeping over his betrayal of the Lord. Now we see the Lord's eyes penetrating as blazing flames of fire in their insight, penetrating in judgment, a look that indicates that there is no place for you or me to hide when God looks at us. How many of you know people that can kind of look right through you? My mom was like that. Difficult to hide anything from her. But there are people that when they see you, you can tell they're not just looking at you. They're looking through you. And this is the image that John has as he's seeing there. Let me tell you something. If you want to play games, God is not the person to play games with. 
Because you are not going to hide from him the things that you hope nobody knows. He sees through your denial. He sees right into your soul. So you can't hide from him things that you don't want anybody else to see because his eyes are flaming fire that can see right into you and right through you. And he sees it all. Then John describes his feet. He says they were like bronze glowing in a furnace. This is a symbol to us of purification and of strength. Strength in the sense that burnished bronze is a strong metal. If, if, if you were to put shoes on that made of those, you could step on anything and it would literally crush it as if it was an egg. And there's this sense with Jesus is showing that I am the commander of the universe and nobody will stop me when I start walking in authority over what is about to happen. But the other side of this is that there's this purification sense to it. Because not only is he the God that judges, he's the God that refines. How grateful are we that when God is at work within our lives after we have submitted ourselves to him, that he constantly is refining our nature to be more like him. He's bringing about a purity in our life that only he can do. So that when we become overwhelmed with the sin in ourselves and the destructive habits and the chains that seem to bind us from, from freedom and purity, th that we can look to him and we see that standing in the midst of his church is one who will refine us because of his nature. And he will burn away all the sin and all of the junk and all of the trash that is within your life and within your relationships. That's what he saw when he saw the feet of Jesus. And then he describes his voice. And his voice was like the sound of rushing water. How many of you have ever visited Niagara Falls? Most of you have. We live less than three hours away there. There's something about that place that just, it makes all of my senses come alive as you stand at the wall right next to where the water is pouring over the billions of gallons that are flowing over that and the spray that's in the air and the sound. It's so loud that you have to literally yell to talk to the person next to you. And this is God speaking. This is what John sees. He says, his voice, that's the only way I can describe it is like a waterfall. That it, It's powerful and it's authoritative. It's unmistakable, and it is an insistent voice. In other words, what he's saying is, when God speaks, everybody will hear him. Whether you believe or whether you don't, God will have the final word. He will have the final word in your life. He will have the final word on human history, and he will have the final word on eternity because his voice is like a rushing water. And then he describes his hands. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, John identifies a few verses later that the seven stars are the messengers to the seven churches. And, and as a pastor, I love this because it, it, it indicates to me that, that the messengers, those that are bringing the word of God, are held firmly in the right hand of God, that he is holding us, that he's not going to let us go, that he's encouraging us, that he's working in us and through us. And then we come to the understanding that when we receive Jesus, we are all priests and kings before the Lord, so you're held there too. Have there ever been times in your life when you simply wanted to know that you're being held in the right hand of God? When everything seems out of your control and you don't know what to do, nothing 
can take you out of the hand of the God. So when we as a church or we as individuals feel overpowered or outmuscled by the culture and outvoiced by the media, and sometimes we just feel vulnerable, then steps Jesus into this and he says, I want you to see the image of who I am. I am holding you in the power of my right hand and you have nothing to fear because nothing can pluck you out of the hand of God. And then John describes his mouth. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. This speaks to us of triumph. It speaks to us of victory. It speaks of us that the word of God will prevail in the end. That the word of the Lord will have the final say. It is his words in the gospel that banishes illness. It's his words that stops the storm. It's his word which releases the dead. It is in his word that at the end of the age, he will say, as he does in Matthew 25, 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by the Father and take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. But it is also the same word but will look at those who chose not to accept him when he looks at them and says, Depart from me, for I never knew you. It's John's way of saying the power of God's word. It's a symbol of his speaking power. The fact that he is ready to use the sword on the enemies of God. He's ready to establish his kingdom. And then John finally says that the last thing I noticed was his face. His face was like a sun shining in all its brilliance. Yesterday afternoon, I was driving back from Binghamton, and there came around a corner, and there was one place where the sun, as it was beginning to set, was, was so bright. And I remember lowering my visor, and it was underneath my visor, and, and you're trying to squint through your eyebrows and eyelashes, trying to, to keep it on the middle of the road. And, and then I remember thinking, this is Syracuse. I should enjoy this moment. <laughs> And I, I almost get this sense as John, having been dropped in the middle of the scenario, turns around to hear the voice and, and begins to describe what he sees, that as he looks to the face of Jesus, he is squinting because of the glory of the Lord that is represented in the face, and he can't get a clear view because it's like looking into the sun. And this is the vision that we need to keep before us. This is the Jesus that we worship. This is the Jesus that we sing about. This is the Jesus that brings us to church every Sunday. This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of Lords. He no longer is one that's been disfigured with pain. He is standing in all of his glory. And this is the sevenfold majesty. This is the real Jesus that we someday will stand before and in verse 17, we get the response when he says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and hell. He's speaking to John. Let me put this in perspective to you because John is the disciple that was so close to Jesus that we have a description that he literally leaned and reclined against Jesus with his head on Jesus' chest. And John was so familiar with that view of Jesus 
that he was comfortable leaning against him. And yet when he sees the glorified Jesus, his response is, I am without strength and I fall down as if I am dead because I cannot behold the glory of the one whom I have known in his incarnate form. And this imagery is, is so fascinating because he speaks about that hand that holds the seven stars of the praying saints and the churches. And when he falls as if he's dead, Jesus steps over and it speaks of that hand that reaches down. And he puts his hand on John's shoulder. And he says, don't be afraid. John had this view of looking up the glory of the Lord and in that presence falls down and then Jesus instantly responds. I love the view of a conquering and responding Jesus. Conquers everything, yet is not too big to walk beside you and just put your hand, his hand on your shoulder and say, in my glory, you will feel as if you were dead. But let me tell you, you have nothing to be afraid of because he can still be known as Savior today. And so there's a word to us as a church and to us as an individual. I'm going to ask the worship team if they please come. Hear the word of the Lord that says, fear not. He declares to John, I am the first and the last. You are all in the middle. I, in the line of eternity, we are but a speck. But he says, I know the beginning from the end. And I am in your presence. I'm full of glory. And my arm is not too short, but to lay a hand on your shoulder at whatever stage of life you're in and whatever's going on to say, don't be afraid. I am with you. Would you stand with me as we sing a song and then I want to wrap this up with a final thought.
wraps up this vision with a very, very unique visual phrase. Jesus stands before him, him being John. And after describing that he is the life, that he is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega, he, he holds up a set of keys. And he says, I hold in my hand the keys to death and hell. The visual impact of that should not be lost on the church today. Because Jesus declares earlier in the Gospels that he is the door to heaven. Nobody comes to the Father but through him. He is the only way. But he also, by fact of holding the keys to death and hell, said that you know that when you have the keys to something, you have the power to lock and unlock. You have the power of entrance and exit. And Jesus is saying, I want you to know by my death and resurrection, I now hold the keys for the believer to the things that we fear the most. But let me tell you what this also means to the unbeliever. The Lord holds the keys for those that will reject his salvation to open the door and allow you to a place that you chose to go because you wouldn't go through the door of his presence. You see, not only is the victorious king, he is also the righteous judge. You say, well, how can God ever send anybody to hell? You choose your eternal destination by the choices that you make in this life. And I'm here today as I've been praying all week, believing that there is somebody today and you're sitting here and you are just uncertain. I don't know if my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. But the thought of this glorified Jesus holding the keys of death and hell, knowing that I have a choice of walking through him into salvation or one day he will unlock a door and allow me to go where my choices have allowed me rejecting him you will never if you're here today you will never ever forget this service and the opportunity to choose him so with your eyes closed heads bowed I'm going to ask you this question John reveals to us the real Jesus loving holy majestic omniscient author authoritative powerful he stands in the midst of this church and he's holding the destinies of mankind and he says to you today won't you choose me and come through the door which i provided so that heaven can be your inheritance but if not i hold the keys of death and hell 